0: I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 17 today. Remember we've said that the first part of the book of Romans is doctrinal, lots of uh, theology, and this last half of the book of Romans, if you could call it half, this last section is the practice, the practical, putting into practice the reality of the truths that Paul has addressed in these first chapters. In chapter 12, he began by telling us to offer ourselves as as living sacrifices, offering ourselves to God, relating to to Him. And then he moves into the discussion of genuine relationships within the body of Christ and talked about ministry giftedness and that that our relationships with one another, remember we said are to be based on genuine love and faithfulness relating to other believers. And now in this section there's a a call to, as, as followers of Christ, not to retaliate when we've been wronged. So many scholars believe that in this section Paul is talking about Our relationship as believers with those people outside of the body of Christ, those outside, um, just unbelievers might characterize that. Others feel like what Paul is saying here is, no, he's addressing those within the body that might be hostile. Well, he uses the word enemy, so I believe he's referring to, to those who are hostile toward Christianity, but much of what he says here is appropriate with our relationships within the body when someone wrongs us. Remember, we said last time that the enemy is not the person. Satan is our ultimate enemy. But Paul refers to that person who is hostile toward us in this passage as the enemy. So if you would follow along as I read aloud, Romans 12, verse 17. After he's talked about our obligations to one another with love, he says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil or overcome by evil, but conquer or overcome evil with good. Several truths here that we're going to look at today. Practical application of how we can relate to someone who's hostile toward us. Number one, Paul says, don't stoop to the world's standards. Don't lower yourself to the standards of the world. In verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. That's what the world does. That's the the tendency of of the world. The world's way is to return evil for evil. If somebody does me wrong, I'm going to do them wrong right back. In fact, if I'm going to do them wrong, I might up it a little bit, right? Turn it up a notch. They made me mad. I'm going to make them madder. They shortchanged me. I'm going to shortchange them even more. They hurt my feelings. I'm going to hurt their feelings even more. They spoke evil against me. I'm going to speak more evil against them. That's the world's way to return evil for evil. By the way, the natural tendency of the human spirit, the human being, is to want to do that. That's what Paul calls the flesh in, in our human nature, ourselves, the, the way we were wired in our sin nature. We want to fight back. We want to, to make it right in our eyes and defend ourselves, returning evil for evil. That's the world's way. I read about a survey taken about uh, 10 years or so ago. Florida State University did this. I think it still applies today. They, they studied employees who endured abuse from their bosses and how they retaliated with that abuse, so here's here's the percentages: thirty percent of the employees who felt like they were wrong by their bosses slowed production or purposely made errors. That's how they can get back. Twenty nine percent took sick days off even when they were not sick. Twenty seven percent purposefully avoided their boss. Twenty five percent decided just the passive way to take longer breaks. Now, that research shows that like 30-something percent, if you want to round all that up, of people in the workplace who feel wrong by their bosses, they want to get back. That's our nature. That's the world's way. But Paul says, implies here that the believer, letter be if you're taking notes here, is to have a good reputation with outsiders. Don't do the way the world does. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. The believers have a good reputation. Much of the New Testament speaks about the fact that the world is looking at us. They're looking to see if we really are different. If really, and by the way, relationships is where it comes down, where the rubber meets the road, right? Not what we talk about, not what we say, not what we we say we practice, but how we relate to others. We're to have a good reputation. Three things about that. Even our enemy should not be able to accuse us. Try to live, try to do what is right, honorable in everyone's eyes. Even our enemy, the person who's hostile toward us, the person who disagrees with us, should not be able to accuse us. By the way, if you live a consistent Christian life, people will oppose you. People will be hostile toward you. I love this story. of I think it's John Wesley, circuit-riding preacher. And, and everywhere he went, people people, he preached on street corners because they kicked him out of the churches because he was preaching grace and the churches weren't. So he's out there preaching on street corner and going to, to, to a farm in a field and people would throw tomatoes at him and vegetables at him and rocks at him and, and constantly running him out of town. And one, one period of time, he didn't have much opposition. People weren't throwing stuff at him. People weren't, weren't running him out of town, so he's on his knees praying, and, he, and he's praying, God, uh, is there something wrong with my, my ministry, my heart, because nobody's opposing me. And about that time, somebody threw a rock or a brick, and it hit the wall above his head, and it caught his attention, and he said, thank you, Lord, I must be right in line with what I'm supposed to be doing. If nobody's opposing you, if nobody's questioning you, if nobody's hostile, maybe you're not walking in obedience. Maybe you're not doing Romans 12, 1 and 2, submitting your your body as a living sacrifice to him as as your spiritual act of worship. We have to be careful the way we relate. We don't want to give people any opportunity to accuse us us of being wrong in relationships. Secondly, no one should have the opportunity to slander us. When When we have our our leadership and we, we ordain someone to the ministry, or someone to the ministry of deacon. or, or, or we, we talk about being above reproach as the New Testament says, that that person is to be above reproach. That means that person should, can't be perfect, nobody's perfect, but they should live a life. Their reputation is that nobody could find a way to accuse or slander us. And I just said it this way to kind of summarize everything I've been trying to say. By the way, as I went through reviewing my notes again this morning, I thought, man, there's a lot of repetition in this sermon. And I was thinking, I said it this way. I said, you know, I'm just taking the text. Maybe God needs us to repeat these things, all right? So I wanted to summarize it this way. Number three, we are on display to a watching world. That's what I'm summarizing here. As Paul is saying, the world's view is this way. I'm to to do what is honorable. The watching world is looking at me, and I'm on display. Colossians 4, verse 5, Paul says, act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. In First Thessalonians 4.12, Paul says, so that you may walk properly in the presence of outsiders. In 1 Timothy 3.7, he writes, furthermore, he, speaking of a leader, should have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. We are on display to a watching world. Sagemont Church in Houston, it's been our model for debt-free ministry. Their, their mission statement right now is they want to be living proof, of a loving God to a watching world isn't that good living proof of a loving God to a watching world they are watching us we're on display back in the 1800s when the Northwestern Mutual life Insurance Company came into existence it was a small a company just started out they began to take clients and begin to sign up life insurance policies and immediately after the company started, there was a train wreck and And 14 people were killed. Two of those were people who had policies with this Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company. Immediately, before they even had a chance to have people paying in, there's time for payout. And I think it was $3,500. That shows you how times have changed. But all the company had in their their, uh, till was $2,000. So the owner of the company and the treasurer both went out and borrowed the money so that they could pay... The, the life insurance claims to pay the policies to those families who had lost loved ones. And this is what the, 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 uh, the history says about them. Those two men agreed together that they would rather see the company fail than to neglect their obligation to those people who trusted them to keep their word. I thought, well, that's the description of the way we should be as followers of Christ. We should go overboard I'm not advocating borrowing money to do that. We want to be debt-free, right? But we should go overboard to make sure that our word is our word and that we are people of integrity and that they can't accuse us. That's verse 17. Let's look at verse 18 now. It's pretty clear. He says, if possible, some translations say as far as is possible. If possible... On your part, live at peace with everyone. Number two, try, and I put the word try in there because Paul says it's possible, try to live at peace with everyone. We are to be peacemakers, not sources of conflict. We are to be peacemakers, not sources of conflict. Now, can you see how that would apply to the congregation as well as our relationship to those outside who are hostile toward Christianity? I don't want to be the cause of conflict. Sometimes people come to me about issues and they'll say, Pastor, I really want to be part of the, part of the solution, not a part of the problem. Boy, I like that. Sometimes I want to say, um, thank you for bringing to my attention all those things that you think are wrong. Like I didn't see those things. But are you ready to step up and help? I had a conversation one time with a man who was, uh, uh, had grown up in the church Traditional church, he had even been made a deacon, and we were talking one day, and, and he said, Kevin, do they teach this at seminary? I said, what? He said, do they, do they teach that when you go to your pastor with an idea that the pastor says, well, are you going to do something about it? Do they teach that at seminary? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I, I, we, we've noticed that there needs to be a Sunday school class for young adults. And so we went to the pastor and told him, and he said, well, are you praying about teaching that? Do they teach that in seminary? I said, no, they don't. So, but I think it's biblical. He didn't like that response, but... Are you ready to be a part of the solution? Are you ready to say, oh, there's a need there. We need workers. We need service. We need this. We need that. Okay. Sometimes I want to say, duh. Are you willing to, to be a part of the solution? It's not a source of the conflict. Secondly... I just want to say this because Paul mentions that Peace with all men is conditional. It's conditional. It may not be possible. He uses that phrase, if possible. William Barclay, a, a scholar of several generations back, said Christianity is not an easygoing tolerance which will accept anything and shut its eyes to everything. There may come a time when some battle has to be fought, and when it does, the Christian will not shirk it. That's true, if possible. It may not be possible to live at peace, because that person may draw a line in the sand, because their convictions are so strongly against what your convictions are, and, and you, there's a, there there's may not be opportunity, so recognize that, if possible. It may not be. J. and McGee used to tell a story about going to visit a neighbor of one of his church members, and He's talking to his church member about, I'm going to go visit your neighbor, and the the church member said, look, don't even bother. They don't get along with anyone. You can try. They don't like anybody. There are people like that. That doesn't mean we don't try, but it does mean that we may need to recognize there are some we may not be able to live at peace with. Secondly, and I think this is so true, we can only be responsible for our part. You might paraphrase what Paul is saying in verse 18 is do your part as far as you can do your part. This isn't in your outline, but I want us to look at Matthew 7. Where is Matthew? I'm going the wrong way. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In Matthew 7 verse 3, as Jesus is teaching about judging, in verse 3, Listen to this. Maybe you've heard this. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, there's a log in your eye? Hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Let me tell you something. Whenever you look at someone else and you think something's wrong with them, Jesus says, look at yourself first. You may be trying to, to get a speck out of their eye because they're saying or doing or not saying or not doing or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus says, there's a two by four. That's my paraphrase. There's a four by four in your eye. That's what he's saying. Some translations say the, a moat and a beam. Some translations say Log. Jesus says what Paul is saying here. You do what you can do. You do what your part is. By the way, you know what I've found? When I step back and begin to search my own heart and prayerfully look at me and my junk, their junk doesn't seem to be such a big deal anymore. There have been times when I've wanted to straighten somebody out in the Lord." Just tell them what for, you know? And I begin to, to do what Jesus says, what Paul says. Look, look at your own life. And I, and I realize, i got so much work to do right here. I don't, I don't have time to mess with you. Maybe the reason you're, you've been so busy with noticing what's wrong with everybody else is because you haven't spent enough time checking your own heart. He says, try to live at peace as far as possible. And I think that means do your part. Number three. Look at verse 19. Y'all hear that thunder? Yeah. And all God's people said, right? Wait, <laughs> When we were meeting in the gym, right behind the, the, this property, right behind the gym back there, a rainstorm came through one Sunday morning on that metal roof, and it was so loud. Even with the, 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 the speakers, they couldn't hear my voice. I was pushing as hard as I could. We just heard this roar of, so we just sat back and listened to the rain for a while. We won't do that today. We have a real roof, okay? <laughs> Verse 19. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay says the Lord. Number three, always leave the results with God. That's a good policy, isn't it? doesn't matter what you're talking about. If you're talking about stewardship and giving and tithing, if you're talking about relationships, if you're talking about ministry opportunities, if you're talking about missions, always leave the results with God. But Paul is talking about relationships here. He's talking about the the tendency in the human, the human nature to get back at someone, to retaliate, to avenge ourselves. He says, don't do it. Don't avenge yourselves. Leave room for God. Several things I want to say about that to kind of break it down. Only God is capable of administering unbiased judgment. Only God can do that. Only God can be completely fair and unbiased. You may think you can, You may think you know what's right for a person. Let God take it. Listen, he's never too lenient, and he's never too strict. Isn't that good? Now, one of the struggles that we had parenting our kids is is when are we being too strict and when are we being too lenient? When our daughter was born, I, I just wanted to be the perfect parent. I think I was too strict with her. And then our son came along, and so we kind of pulled it back a little bit. I think we got too lenient with him. And it's a give and take, isn't it? And as parents, sometimes you say, Lord, help. God never has to worry about that. I never have to worry about, is he going to be fair? Is he going to be just? He's He's always without bias. By the way, someone said it this way. If you're trying to defend yourself then God can't. If you're trying to defend yourself, you're not leaving room for God to defend you. If you really have been wronged, let God handle it. Because if you're trying to make it right and fix it in your own way by getting back at that person, God doesn't have room to get in there. If If you're busy trying to draw the line and defend your rights and your privileges, blah, 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 that doesn't leave room for God to work. And that's my next point. What a great transition. Give God room and time to work. Give Him room. Give Him time. By the way, His his vengeance, His wrath, His justice is not always immediate. Did you hear that? God, why haven't you done something about that? Give Him time. Give Him room. Do you know if you go back and look at your Old Testament history, you see the children of Israel when God gave them the land of Canaan and told them to go in and to wipe out all the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and all the ites, when God told them to do that, that was a judgment on those nations because for 400 years, those nations were practicing child sacrifice. They were terribly, terribly wicked people. And for 400 years, God waited on those people to respond. And finally, he used the children of Israel to be judgment on them. If it had been you, would you have waited that long? Uh, I wouldn't have. Give God room. Get out of the way. Sometimes when we're teaching on marriage with with husbands and wives and their relationships, and and I didn't make this up. I heard someone say it, a, a lady say this. I think it's good. The definition of wives submit to your husband, you know what this one lady said? That means you duck so that God can smack him. Leave room. Y'all, the ladies are laughing, guys. None of us are laughing. I would say for us, maybe it's get out of the way so that God can deal with the situation, so that God can deal with the person if you've been wronged. rightly. It's not always the case. The third thing about leaving the results with God. When our enemy takes advantage of us, we should not even desire vengeance. John Calvin wrote of this passage here, God, restrain our hands and restrain our hearts. Tim Keller says it this way, when you hate the person who's wronged you, he's won. He's won the battle when you hate that person. When your enemy takes advantage, it should not even be a desire of mine to get back. Number four, verse 20 and 21. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be keeping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Meet the needs of those who are hostile toward you. Again, Jesus and Paul use the term enemy. I'm kind of expanding it to kind of help you get your, wrap your brain around the reality here. That person who's hostile toward you, meet their needs. It, it means to go beyond retaliating and do good. We might say There's, that's, that's the battle. The battle is to, to not want to retaliate. And Paul says, Jesus says, that's good, but you need to go beyond that. You need to go the next step. So here's what happens. As we meet needs, we do the opposite of what the world expects. We do the opposite of what the world expects. Your neighbor gets mad at you and keys your car. You take him a plate of chocolate chip cookies. I mean, real chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> the normal family recipe, okay? I know what some of you are thinking. That's what they, ex- they expect us to key their car. They expect us to slander them on Facebook. They expect us to, to tell our friends we hate them. We, they expect us to rally the troops and say, I've been hurt, I've been hurt. That's what they expect. When we meet their needs, we do the opposite of what they expect. Here's the world's way. Number one, at its worst, the world returns evil for evil. At its worst. When you return evil for evil, you're adding fuel to the fire. You're just stoking the flame. At its best, the world returns good for good. At its best, you're good to me, I'll be good to you. Here's Jesus' way. Always return good or evil. Always return good or evil. It's very common at Christian rock concerts, and whatever that definition is, at some Christian concerts, for protesters to be out front holding up signs with Scripture saying what they're doing is wrong, that God never intended music to sound like that, and all these protesters. I think it was Switchfoot at one of their concerts, there were people out protesting them, and some of the band went out with coffee and donuts and tried to love on the protesters. At the conclusion of some of their concerts, they will say, now look, look, they talk about their music, and they'll say there are people out there who don't agree with what we're doing, and they're going to say some things to you, and they're going to, you just go out and love them. Just go out and love them. I think that's appropriate. Return good for evil. When somebody slanders you, don't slander them back. Find something good to say about them. Fourthly, your kindness will impact that person. Your kindness will impact that person. If he's hungry, give him food. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Look at the last part of verse 20. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. What in the world does that mean? Most scholars believe that that the intent of that is to say by meeting the needs of that person, you're going to bring remorse and sorrow on them for the way they've treated you. Some translators say that it's referring to the fact of a person carrying hot coals to a fire that you're adding coals to their fire to help stoke their fire. I'm not sure if that's intended there, but I know this. The other person's going to be impacted when I do something kind to them, when I meet a need that they have.
1: They've hurt my family, so I'll go mow their grass because it needs it.
0: By the way, when we identify evil too closely with the evil doer we have this sense that if we can destroy the evil doer, we've destroyed the evil. Be careful about that. Remember who our real enemy is? Satan. Our goal should be to show love, kindness, forgiveness to anyone who's wronged us. I mentioned repetition. I just want to close with this summary all right in case you've missed this first don't avoid the hostile person don't avoid them because Jesus is saying do your part Paul is saying do your part the Bible's saying meet their needs go the extra mile I got a phone call recently from a man who had been offended by another man a, a peer a colleague and this phone call went something like this. Did you hear what he said to me? Did you hear that, that, that statement he made? I said, I, I'm not sure. I was in a meeting. I said, I, yeah, I, I think I did Do you know what he meant by that? And I said, no, I don't. Well, here's what he meant by that. I thought that was interesting that he knew what that other man meant by that. Can you believe he said that and meant that? And I said, well, I don't know that he meant that and I'm not sure that's what he intended, but have you talked to him? No, but can you believe he said that? repeatedly in that 10-minute conversation, I probably said five times or I don't know how many. I wasn't counting. Go talk to that man. Take him to lunch. Ask him what he meant. Tell him you've been hurt and offended by that comment. Well, yeah, but. Our tendency is to talk to somebody else about it because that's a lot easier, isn't it, than to go to that person and address the hurt. Don't avoid them. Secondly, express loving words and actions. That's what Paul is saying here. We focus on loving the other person, not defending our
1: rights. Thirdly,
0: we forgive and we give up any desire for retaliation. Not so easy, is it? Joe Stoll tells a story about a high school football coach. And whenever their team would lose, the coach instructions to the, the ground were: leave that that score, that losing score on the scoreboard for the whole week. I want, I want this team to see that they lost. I want to be reminded of that. And maybe a good strategy for a football team, but it's not a good strategy for the Christian life. Some of us just need to turn off the scoreboard. Quit looking at the scoreboard. Here's a novel idea. Quit keeping score of how bad everybody's been toward you. And let's act loving and forgiving
1: toward those who've wronged us. Let's pray together.